0: Good evening, Tracy. Good evening. Yes, that's right. It just turned to be afternoon here in California, but I know it's late in the evening in Denmark, and um, it's great to see you again. Um, very excited about what we're going to be talking about today, and we should probably just briefly introduce ourselves um, one more time. so, um, I'm Tracy Beth Hogue. Um, I am pronounced her in Danish. Um, I am a PhD, an MD-PhD uh, epidemiologist and a private practice physician. Um, I'm at UCSF and also in private practice in Northern California. And I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Christine Stableben, and you can go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you, Tracy.
1: I'm a professor of global health at the University of Southern Denmark. I'm also Uh, working quite a lot outside Denmark, namely in Guinea-Bissau in West Africa, where we study vaccines uh, for their overall health effects.
0: Excellent. So um, today we are going to be talking about two different vaccines since it's fall and uh, uh, people are considering whether or not they're going to be getting the flu vaccine. And we're also going to be talking about the COVID-19 vaccine because um, in the United States, uh, the Biden administration, they've just announced that they're going to be, there's going to be a new release of a new COVID-19 vaccine targeted against the XBB variant. And I know um, people are going to want to know what we know about that. We're going to be comparing uh, how Denmark and the United States are looking at these two vaccines, which groups they might be recommended for. Um, but we, I think we're going to start out by talking about the COVID-19 vaccine and particularly we're going to be, uh, talking about, a, a new study that, uh, suggested that, um, in children, there might be a reduced, uh, immune response or, um, reduced immunity to other, um, infections, a new Australian study and, um, Christine, I know that you have been studying uh, the nonspecific effects of uh, non-live vaccines. And so I'm very curious to get your take on this study and then we can go into a little bit more depth about it. Yeah, so I was excited to
1: see this study, which is the first that has looked at the effect of uh, mRNA vaccines to children on their immune cells and their ability to respond to other pathogens than sars coronavirus too. So it's a feature of the innate immune system that was only recently discovered by Meijnen Teer and his group in the Netherlands that it can actually be trained both positively um, and but also negatively by various uh, interventions. And and the research field that we have had together with Meijnen Teer's group is uh, the combination of our epidemiological studies that have shown that live vaccines can have very beneficial effects on the risk of other infections basically when you get a live attenuated vaccine you get increased um, resistance towards a, toward a broad range of, of other pathogens um, and, and that has been paralleled in the lab but behind a by studies showing that the live vaccines actually can train your innate immune system which was previously thought to be a rather stupid immune system that only worked as a kind of first line of defense but not didn't have any kind of memory so once you had once once you were over an infection then the innate immune cells would kind of forget everything about what happened and they would be just as naive next time an, an infection came and mihanyteer groundbreakingly showed that that the innate immune system actually has a memory it remembers and it learns something from these uh, live vaccines that make them make them um uh, innate immune cells more able to defend themselves against new threats. So basically, with a live vaccine, you get a bonus; you get a prevention against the specific disease, but you also get innate immune cells that are more vigorous. They are more up to the job when new infections come and and challenge uh, the body and the immune system. But what we also saw in our epidemiological studies was that non-live vaccines, on the other hand, could come at a high price they could give specific protection against the vaccine disease but in the African context where we study them we also see that they can increase the risk of other infections um, so if for instance you get a diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine then you can become particularly if you're a female you can become more susceptible to other infections in a period after the the DTP vaccine um so, and, and in parallel, what Mihaly Netea showed was that these non-live vaccines in the laboratory uh, were making the innate immune cells more lazy. So just as the live vaccines could make the innate immune cells more vigorous, the non-live vaccines could make them more lazy for a period. So that looks like a very promising way to explain why we see very different effects of live and non-live vaccines on the risk of other infections in our epidemiological studies in Africa, namely that they will train the innate immune system differently and making the innate immune cells lazy will will for a period lower the threshold and increase the risk of other infections because the innate immune cells are not up to the job, so to speak. Um, so, So we were of course very interested in how would the mRNA vaccines affect the innate immune cells, would they work like live vaccines or non-live vaccines? And the study in children is is actually the second study, uh, but the first to be published in a a proper journal. The the first study was in adults and it's still only available as a preprint, so I should mention that. Uh, But the two studies that have now looked at the effect of mRNA vaccines on the innate immune cells, one in adults and now this last one that you're talking about in children, they both show very similar responses of the innate immune cells uh, towards mRNA vaccines. And and what they show is that the mRNA vaccines seem to work like non-live vaccines in the sense that both in adults and in children, they are associated with more lazy innate immune cells.
0: I see. So you, you had actually a really great analogy when you gave your TED talk that I want to bring up about um, live versus non-live vaccines and how the immune system responds. And you said that when, when a person receives a live vaccine, it's like training to play tennis where you have a partner who shoots the ball in all directions to your forehand, your backhand, makes you jump high and crouch down low. And so you become a very reactive tennis player versus the non-live vaccines, it seems like um, because they, I assume because they present a smaller antigen when you get the vaccine that you, it's it's more like a, a ball machine where it's feeding the ball always to the exact same spot, maybe to your forehand. And so then when you're in a real life situation and you're faced with balls coming in all directions, you don't know what to do because you've only ever used your forehand. And and so I really like that. And before we get more into the details of these studies, because these are really um, laboratory studies and not clinical studies from the COVID-19 vaccines, I want to ask if besides the DTP vaccine, if you've seen this with other um vaccines and diseases where we have like i guess what's the most compelling evidence we have that this is happening um with the live versus non-live vaccines besides that the DTP vaccine would you say yeah so for the live vaccines
1: the vaccine that has been most studied is the BCG vaccine against tuberculosis and for that we have really compelling evidence that it does have very strong non-specific effects it increases um, the survival rate of newborn babies in uh, in randomized trials. It reduces their risk of getting uh, 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 threatening infections like pneumonia and uh, septicemia. Um, it has also been shown to, when given in, at school age in Denmark, to reduce the risk of dying for adults up to the age of 45. So really long-lasting effects on overall survival. And um, and. But right now, people are looking at it uh, and finding promising data in relation to uh, blood sugar control in diabetes, um, uh, lung cancer. Mm. Sixty years after, I mean, it's basically Alzheimer. <laughs> there are so many promising directions of research in uh, for on, on BCT, suggesting that it has some profound effects, and maybe not so surprisingly, since it is um, a mycobacterium that human human beings co-evolve with and and there might be some when when such a pathogen doesn't kill you there might be some or it has a risk of killing you and and we're not all dead it's also because it does probably confer some survival advantages and and this is so this is so super interesting what's happening right now in 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 that whole field and in parallel in immunological studies um, so much compelling evidence that bcg enters the bone marrow and primes your um, immune cells, the mother cells of your immune cells, so that you can have these long lasting effects. We can now demonstrate this takes place in the bone marrow where where the stem cells are programmed to spit out innate immune cells that are more uh, vigorous. Um, so so this is not just a temporary effect, this can really be uh, an imprinting effect that can, can last for decades basically. So, um, So I think with BCG, we are quite far in terms of the benefits of live vaccines. We have also seen in epidemiological studies, uh, benefits of uh, the live measles vaccine, measles mumps rubella vaccine, oral polio vaccine, and smallpox vaccines. For the non-live vaccines, the best evidence is for diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. It's unfortunately also one of the most widely used uh, vaccines in the world, uh, given in multiple doses to, to children all over the world. I should say that we have looked primarily at the diphtheria tetanus whole cell pertussis uh, DTP vaccine, uh, which is used in Africa and Asia, so I cannot talk uh, about the DTAP vaccines given in other places in the world. But for that vaccine, we have now 16 studies that uh, suggest that DTP vaccine is associated with increased overall mortality in spite of protecting against the vaccine diseases. But we also have Um, more limited evidence for but similar effects seen for uh, five other non-live vaccines. I can put a link to our review (laughs) of the vaccines uh, up with the podcast so people have a chance to look for themselves. But now I I could add that mRNA vaccines start to look like one one of the other vaccines of the non-live vaccines where we have seen negative non-specific effects, as we call them, these negative effects on other diseases is the actually the H1N1 influenza vaccine. And now I think we can add as a seventh vaccine based on these two studies cautiously that mRNA vaccines may, uh, mRNA COVID vaccines may be yet a seventh non-live vaccine that is associated with negative immune training or, or uh, immune tolerance, um, we also call it.
0: Great. Right. Uh, thank you for that review. And I would point people to our previous episode if they haven't watched it yet, where we do discuss the DTP vaccine in a little more detail. And um, so I I want to get back to the, the COVID 19 vaccine. And well, uh, first, let me just say for a second that when you're looking at the vaccines and um, non COVID 19 vaccines, and you're looking at the live vaccines and the beneficial effects. You know, personally, I, I would be really interested in looking at the randomized data that just because now we've seen in multiple countries and we've discussed this before, the bias of um, healthier people tending to be the ones that get vaccinated uh, versus not vaccinated. So, of course, we, we've also discussed that. You can use um, like a natural experiment based on timing of the vaccine and certain people getting the vaccine and certain not because of their birth dates, but that's just an important bias I think to consider um, when looking at those studies. Um, but getting back to the to the COVID nineteen vaccine, so so now we we have this study and basically just to let people know what they did, so they uh, measured um, these children's blood so uh, for uh, cytokine levels and they actually looked at mar- multiple markers of immune function um, and this, these were 5 to 11 year old children and they looked before they were vaccinated and then they looked after they were the second dose of the vaccine and then um, they waited um, and Looked like a, f- a few months later. I think it was six months later that they looked down the road, and and so what they found was these reduced levels of cytokines. Um, and actually, they they looked after after a number of them got the booster, if I remember correctly, and they didn't find a dose response, but they found that the cytokine levels were still reduced. And so there was no there was no control group in this study, um, but they used children as their own control. So they looked at the 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 um the the levels prior to them being vaccinated and then after the second and third dose of the vaccine. And so I asked you um, over email, well, how do you know that this, these changes that they saw weren't just because of seasonal changes, other circulating viruses? um, And you know, isn't it a problem that they didn't have a control group? And so I'm, I'm curious to get your take on that now. Yes. I,
1: I think we as epidemiologists, we like to have randomized trials. We like to have a control group. Um, I, what I've come to learn by, and I'm not an immunologist, but by working so closely with immunologists is that they tend to prefer this kind of setup. This was also used in the adult study where you use people as their own uh, controls. There's a huge degree of uh, inter-individual differences in the cytokine responses. So you you kind of have your own setting and and for small experiments like you like these experiments where you have only a limited number of people because it's so you know cumbersome and so expensive to do these studies so with limited number of people i think immunologists prefer to have uh, they they think there's too much risk or there is a certain risk at least for having controls and 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 vaccine recipients who are just by chance different because they have different immunological set points and that could kind of skew uh, very much these uh, small experiments. So they, they tend to prefer this setup with having people acting as their own controls. But I agree with you that it is a limitation in my view of the Australian study in children that they didn't have any unvaccinated children and also that they were all more or less included at the same time in January and February and, and followed up for the same period. And you absolutely, you're right that there are other things that could change how you respond over such a period, such as um, the season, which we know from other studies can influence how you respond. So I think the, um the reason I, yeah, and I would like to, to actually go back one step. I said that we could add mRNA vaccines cautiously to the as a seventh non-live vaccine, I, I I would like to pull that back actually because I think the six non-live vaccines we have we have epidemiological clinical evidence and and you're right this is just immunological evidence so I don't think it's it's uh, uh, justifies to to put it into the group of non-live vaccines where we have seen negative non-specific effects what we what we see very cautiously is that it tends to be associated with this decreased immune function, which is similar to what we have seen for other non-live vaccines. And I guess that's why I, I put a bit of emphasis on it. If it stood alone, I wouldn't have put much emphasis on it, but it does stand next to a study in adults, which found exactly the same pattern with mRNA vaccines being associated with reduced responses to particularly viral pathogens, but increased responses to fungi, which is, you know, you don't really need in daily life a response to fungi. It's a bit difficult to say what it's about, but it's super interesting and important, I think, that that it's so parallel in children and in adults. It does suggest that it's not just random variation, that in Australian children you see decreased viral responses and increased fungi responses, and in, in Dutch adults you see the same. I, I think that is an argument in favor of this being a, a true biological effect of the vaccines. Um, and then I add to that that we have seen the same for other non live vaccines like typhoid vaccine, like, like the diphtheria or the DTAP vaccine. We, we studied that in the Netherlands. Uh, non live uh, smallpox vaccine showed the same pattern. Uh, Salmon, yeah, I said t- salmonella typhoid vaccine, I think. Yeah, we have a number of non live vaccines which have shown the same pattern of, of more lazy innate immune cells that spit out less cytokines when challenged with other pathogens. So so to me, this is a safety signal. And I know we discussed it a little bit. Uh, I, I was also very, you know, I thought a lot about whether I dared to call it a safety signal, but I cannot find any way to say that it's not a safety signal, that you have an alteration in your innate immune system, which is parallel in children and in adults, which is suggesting that that the innate immune cells may be less capable at responding to other virus. Uh, based on the fact that we have no clinical data on the effect of COVID-19 vaccines, mRNA vaccines, on the risk of other infections, I, I think this makes it pertinent to study.
0: Yes. So I was glad that you sent me that other study because it was interesting that we saw the same very similar pattern in, in adults. And, and so I, I actually, I do want to bring something up about the, the five to 11-year-old su- study, which is that their rationale actually for not including a control group was that they said it was unethical to have a control group where they didn't vaccinate five to 11-year-olds, which was so interesting to me because obviously there was equipoise about this question because a number of nations did not recommend at least initially, rec, uh, vaccinating five to 11 year olds. And now many nations across the world don't recommend uh, vaccinating five to 11 year olds at all for COVID-19 um, and that's including Denmark. And so, you know, I thought, gosh, what a wasted opportunity that they could have, you know, randomized these children um, to uh, to receiving the vaccine or not, you know, the, the children who signed up for the study. But I think we need to get back to the the, the point that that you've brought up and that we agree about, which is we actually don't have clinical results um, that demonstrate that people that children or adults who are vaccinated are more likely to be infected with other viruses. Um, And so, you know, a number of people have brought up, like, wouldn't we see this signal if it existed? And it got me thinking about how difficult it would actually be to detect the signal because, Um, so I brought up the example of detecting the myocarditis signal after the, um, after the, the COVID-19 vaccine and looking at the VARIS data alone, we could very easily see that it deviated from the expected background rate in the first seven days after the vaccine for the second dose in adolescent boys, we were seeing over 50 times, actually closer to 70 times the, um, the rate of uh, myocarditis that one would expect during that same time period. So it was a very obvious signal. So when you have like a very rare event um, happen after a vaccine, you, you can quickly um, identify that through the national surveillance systems. And of course, multiple countries identified that and Israel was the first one. But with the this infection risk, this is so difficult to detect with surveillance systems because as I brought, brought up on Twitter, you know, if you have a 10% increase in infection risks, um, you know, how are you going to detect that? Like someone getting um, an upper respiratory infection like three months after they're vaccinated, they're, you know, what, they're not gonna report that um, exactly. as a vaccine side effect. And all we have is observational data, and we know in the United States, and we know in Israel, and I'm I'm actually, I've been looking for these data from Denmark, but we, from the U.S. and Israel, we know that people who are vaccinated tend to be healthier, like they tend to be less likely to die of all causes, and so you know, these, that obscures the signal of, of finding this increased risk of infection. And so really, you know, what we need to do, what we should be doing, and I know you brought this up, that if the United States is going to be recommending that children down to six months of age are going to get this new, um, this new booster targeted at XBB, really, you know, we, sh- the onus should be on us to randomize children to get it and to have like, a longer-term follow-up. And we're really lacking those data on children. You know, is it even effective against COVID-19? We don't know. We're using, you know, I don't know if we're actually going to even be measuring antibody levels this time. I don't know what data we're going to be seeing, but I've heard we're not going to be getting clinical data on it. So you know, it, we, we really, um, we don't know if this new vaccine, especially in children who've already been infected, um, is going to really have any impact on their risk of getting COVID-19, on the risk of having severe outcomes with COVID-19, or, you know, if it could be counterproductive. And I think, you know, we, we can talk about um, also the switch that, speaking of, uh, you know, immune functions, changes in immune function that we're seeing in the laboratory, um, this switch to this IG4, uh, uh, you know, uh, specific class, I guess it's like a a non-inflammatory antibody, is that correct, this IG4 class switch? So there has been
1: a few reports saying that what happens with increasing number of COVID-19 vaccines is that the body will produce different types of uh, IgG antibodies. There are different subclasses, IgG 1, 2, 3, and 4. And IgG 4 is kind of dampening your immune response uh, towards that specific antigen that it's targeted against. So what this data suggests to me from these studies is that there's, first I should say, this is highly unusual. I haven't heard about it happening after any other vaccine or after any other infection, for that matter. So, so we are seeing something here after the mRNA vaccines in repeated doses, which is very unusual. And that for me also is a cause of interest and curiosity. And we need to understand why is this is happening, particularly for these vaccines. Is it because there is some sustained um production of of spike protein in the body the there's been some speculations that that monocytes and other immune cells that are that are transfected with the mrna can can kind of remain in the body in the lymph nodes and produce a continuously spike that will continuously like you know the allergen um, or the allergy uh, tablets or injections you can get if you have hay fever against grass you can get injections repeated injections that will eventually dampen your response by so by exposing the body again and again to grass in limited doses you can you can actually develop some tolerance where the immune system says well i've seen this so many times i don't bother anymore and it kind of dampens your allergy and you're cured of your otherwise disturbing hay fever so in, it has been speculated that that this is what is happening with the mrna vaccines in the sense that you uh, you get so exposed to to after numerous doses and pot- potentially also continuous production in your body of of uh, spike protein that you kind of develop these IgG4 to shut down, uh, like the IgG4 also develops in the allergy treatment. Uh, so so it's actually quite parallel to what happens in allergy treatment, as I see it. And again, I apologize, I'm not an immunologist. I might have misunderstood, but this is the way I've read the data that that you have this. Tolerance development and that could potentially, this is all speculative, but it could lead to diminished responses once you are then truly infected with SARS coronavirus 2. So you could actually develop, in theory, worse disease and get more breakthrough infections if you have received repeated booster doses of mRNA vaccine. Um, it could you know, paradoxically make you more susceptible to SARS-CoV-2 due to this IgG4 uh, subclass switch. And the other thing, and I almost don't dare say it because I once came to say in a Danish radio show that we didn't know a lot about the mRNA vaccines and they could potentially lead to autoimmunity or, or some people speculated cancer. And I got so much bad feedback from kind of just insinuating that or mentioning it as a, as a, as a possible outcome of a vaccine. And, and I didn't invent it. There were people at that time speculating along these lines. And I have to say the worrying part about the IgG4 is that some people are saying it's biologically plausible that this could, in a non-antigen specific way, reduce your control mechanisms to keep cancers in check. So uh, there is a, a theoretical risk that this IgG4 subclass, which could actually lead to an increased risk of having more aggressive cancers. Uh, I'm, I say speculate, speculative and theoretically and everything else, it's not been proven, but it's just to say, again, we have with a new vaccine, where we have very limited experience, where we are now giving it in multiple doses. I mean, the clinical trials only did two doses. We are we're really outside any area where we have any kind of data. I think these observations do strongly, strongly suggest that we have to do randomized trials and we have to follow up on recipients of vaccines and comparable uh, control groups to study overall health outcomes, the immunological, the the clinical, the other infections, and also things like cancer.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I, and and I agree, and, and I think that it's concerning, and particularly because in this study, so they found this dose-response relationship, and um, with receiving the second dose and then the third dose of the class switch to IG4, which again we're saying could potentially increase a person's risk um, for a repeat COVID infection. So you, you know, it increase your risk of having more infections, or like you said, even having severe infections. But then they also compared um, the IG4, um, the, the, the levels, the, the two people who had received the adenovirus vaccines, and they didn't see the same switch um, to the IG4 subclass. And so to me, that was, I was glad that they had a control group that they were able to look at to show, you know, this isn't something that we normally see with other vaccines, but um, a number of people who are listening will will be familiar with this idea of imprinting. Um, and that's the idea that with multiple vaccinations, multiple doses of a particular vaccine that you may paradoxically actually increase your risk of becoming um, infected in the future to that, that same virus that you're trying to prevent um, and so uh and i know that people listening are going many of them are also going to be familiar with the data coming out of the cleveland clinic that looked at healthcare workers that seemed to show you know this increased rate of infection among people who had received more doses of the vaccine and um you know i've looked in depth at those data and Um, They do control um, for the number of times people are being tested, which I was initially worried that that was going on, that if you were being being tested more, the people who had been more often vaccinated were tested more, they had been exposed more to the virus. Um, So they did did, uh, control for testing, but I would point out that the last study from the Cleveland Clinic where they looked at that, they actually didn't control for uh, previous infection up to that up to that time. And so I don't think that they were capturing all of the previous infection. And so it may be that the the, the people who appeared to be infected um, more often, who had received more doses of vaccine, um, had actually just been less likely to be infected before. So that's, it's it's basically, it's an observational study. Um, It seemed to show a dose response, uh, in that there were more infections among the people who had received more vaccines, but I would just caution that it seems like there may be some confounding still going on with that study. And so, in my mind, I don't think that we've really, we we don't have very high quality evidence to show that people who have received a a third dose, a fourth dose, that they're getting infected more often with COVID-19, but I also think that we can't rule it out. And so it gets back to that point that if we're going to be recommending another dose of this vaccine, we really should be running a randomized study, just like you say, and, and following the risk of infection. And and I guess I want to get back now to, um, you know, what what is Denmark going to be recommending? I mean, I know now that the United States is recommending this this now apparently yearly, a COVID-19 vaccine for children six months of age and up because we've gone over you know how many more doses of vaccine that children in the U.S. are recommended to get that it's uh, around three times as many doses um, and so has Denmark like I know the UK made an announcement they're going to probably be recommending it for people 65 and older and I, I haven't seen anything come out of uh, Denmark or the Scandinavian countries yet have you? Yes, so we will in Denmark be
1: recommending it to people aged 65 plus. Um, so this is a change from last year where it was 50 year plus. 50, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, I know that has caused some concern about uh, among people aged 50 to 65 because the way COVID has been talked about as uh, a very serious infection uh, and and vaccines are necessary, etc. Has made people very uh, worried. So, so some people uh, aged 50 to 65 are are truly upset that the Danish health authorities have now changed their recommendation. But, but they do not. Uh, <laughs> they haven't uh, given in, so to speak. So they will maintain that recommendation of giving vaccines to people aged 65 plus, plus um, uh, pregnant women um, and and high risk groups, um, people who are in risk of mm-hmm. uh, at risk of severe COVID 19. Uh, but but all together, I think it's uh, a, a positive change from last year. I still um, would like to see that there was some uh, distinguishing between those who had and didn't have COVID, uh, because I don't th- I don't see any reason to provide COVID boosters to those who already had COVID, uh, healthy people who already had COVID. So basically, they I think they're well protected. They um, they are likely if they get reinfected to get milder infection than the first time they had COVID. If they had super severe COVID, uh, I can understand that there might be a fear that that would happen to them again when they get infected second time. But actually, that would even mm. further lower their risk of getting a severe infection in the second uh, the second time. So basically, I think uh, it's hard to say for people over sixty five um, whether it's good to get a booster or not. If you have, if you're unhealthy. Uh, If you haven't had COVID, it seems like a good idea. But in the other cases, I don't see any reason. So I would probably be more conservative than the Danish government, but I can see absolutely no data to back vaccination of children. And that idea has also been completely abandoned in Denmark and in the Scandinavian countries. I think actually U.S. is the only country in the world to recommend COVID-19 vaccine of children. And, And as I understand it, put it into the routine vaccination program.
0: Yeah, that's, that's correct. I'm not aware of any country, any other countries either. Um, and I'm hoping that someone can maybe comment, you know, on our video, if they're aware of other countries that are recommending it for children. But as we've discussed before, I mean, the risks of COVID-19 to for children are so, are so low that, you know, it's really hard to decrease the risk As like you said, um, if they've already been infected, we know to begin with that their risk of dying from COVID-19 was on average three per million, and that was including children who are, you know, very susceptible and high risk. And so now, you know, after children have had infection, um, you know, a study out of the UK showed they didn't find any children that had died of COVID nineteen. And now, really, MISC, um, which was the other threat to children, it we we don't see that it really exists anymore. And so. Um, you know, I, I agree with you about the previously infected and you you mean previously infected at all at any point with COVID-19, is that correct? Yes, I,
1: I think we still see that, you know, natural immunity will still be protective against severe disease. And this is really what matters. Everybody yeah. gets a cold once in a while. And and, and, and actually so- it, it's, it's, it's probably useful for our maintenance of herd immunity uh, that we do get infected once in a while so you you want to reach that stage where mm. uh, the virus is circulating and you and you once in a while boost your uh, immunity so it doesn't get so low that you wouldn't get boosted because that would i mean eventually leave you vulnerable to severe disease again but but um, but in, uh, in the matter that the virus is circulating and you occasionally get a brief uh, A brief exposure, a brief boosting of your immune response—that is the way to maintain a a, a coexistence with SARS coronavirus, too, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and so I mean, this would be over ninety-five percent of people have already been infected, so it would, of course, leave very few people who who should get infected. But even for them, you know, we don't have prospect. Or sorry, get vaccinated. But even for them, we don't have data to, at least as of yet. And I don't think we're going to get it to show whether or not clinically you know, the vaccine lowers risk of severe disease or how long it will lower infection risk. And so I think we agree on this point that even for people over 65, it is really tough to know what to say. It is so hard to even, you know, estimate a risk benefit uh, calculus in in people when when we just don't have any data. Um, And and so, um, I guess this is—it's—it's it's a good time to transition to talking about the the influenza vaccine, um, because uh, so now's the time of year when people are starting to consider um, whether or not they should get uh, vaccinated for influenza. And so, to to review, so we've been kind of comparing and contrasting the U.S. with Denmark in terms of their recommendations, and so. In the US, again, I feel like uh, it's very similar to the recommendations for the COVID-19 vaccine. In, in the United States, um, it's uh, six months and older. Everyone is recommended to get the influenza vaccine. Um, in Denmark, as far as I understand, it's ages 65 and older and then high-risk groups um, who are younger than that. And, um, and then if you live with a high-risk person and I understand it's also recommended uh, for healthcare workers um, in Denmark. Um, I'm not sure all of the, you know, circumstances and. Uh, and yeah, Well, you're basically covering it, uh, except
1: from also pregnant women are part of the recommendation. And that we might come back to, because there we have some some data that suggests it might not be um, such a good idea, um, which has gone pretty unnoticed. It's published, but I'd like to, to spend a few minutes talking about it. Uh, and then we have, during the last years, uh, out of the risk of having a severe influenza uh, epidemic on top of, of COVID for the last two years, and I think it will be repeated this autumn, uh, children between two and six years are recommended uh, two doses of the live influenza vaccine. But this is completely new in Denmark that we now recommend a vaccine for, for which is mainly given to reduce the burden of disease in the community and not for protecting the children themselves. Um, so, mm. so this uh, the the justification has mainly been that we want to lower the the risk of these children getting infected and and infecting their grandparents, so to speak. Um, so I so see. This is, um, but but this is new. Otherwise, it has been a very conservative policy, which I think is well substantiated by the existing. Uh, data from, from the Cochrane reviews that were done on, on influenza vaccine. And none of them are really supportive of any major role of influenza vaccine. Uh, the, it's low quality evidence and it does show maybe moderate effects on the risk of influenza and influenza-like illnesses. Um, but but there's there's no data on the effect on hospitalizations and mortality. So uh, basically nothing that that suggests that there's a major impact of influenza vaccine. So um, th- th- yeah, I, maybe I should mention also that I haven't seen a review of influenza vaccine in pregnant women, but we did one where we did a combined analysis of the four randomized trials that have been done with influenza vaccine in a, to pregnant women. It's some of the only randomized trials uh, of influenza vaccine at all. And they were done when when people were testing whether it was um, worthwhile to recommend to to pregnant women it's known that women who get influenza can have a, a risk of severe or adverse birth outcomes, um, and that it might also, if they're protected, they might protect their babies. Um, they tested this in four uh, low income countries. Um, so, and you can actually ask why it hasn't been recommended there yet. I don't know if they were just acting as kind of test places for. Uh, pharmaceutical industry that subsequently, uh, you know, sold the vaccines in high-income countries. But anyway, there are four published randomized trials from low-income countries comparing influenza vaccine versus uh, placebo, which was either saline or another vaccine in pregnant women, and they all showed between thirty and seventy percent risk reduction in the reduction in the risk of influenza in the mother and uh, in the child. But interestingly, if you look at the all-cause mortality data. It's um, there's a tendency for higher mortality, both in the mother and the children uh, where the mothers received influenza vaccine. And if you look at severe adverse events uh, for other infections, and these were captured in as a part of the safety part of the randomized trials, then there is a twofold significantly higher risk of these infectious adverse events, uh, serious adverse events in Women who were vaccinated, and there's a 1.31 uh, or 31% significantly increased risk in their babies too. So there is a safety signal oh. coming out of these randomized trials, which I think warrants further investigation. So I'm, I'm again, <laughs> that seems to be my role here, but I'm concerned about the lack of data uh, from proper randomized trials, and the data that that, that is available suggests potential harms, which I don't know how to balance in terms of the reduced risk of influenza, of course, but I just think that all points towards having proper randomized trials of uh, influenza vaccine in high-income settings. Uh, I think there is an equipoise for for countries that are recommending influenza vaccine to pregnant women to, to take one step back and actually propose a randomized or do a randomized trial for a couple of years to Get a full good documentation on the benefits of providing influenza vaccine to pregnant women
0: yeah, oh wow, that's very interesting, and we'll have to link to your study um can i i've I have a couple of questions, but the first is what kind of adverse events were you seeing? uh it's a while back, but these were
1: infectious events I mean it was pneumonia, it was um uh, yeah. I, I have to link to the paper there
0: to give people that. The that's okay. But it's that's, I mean, that's part of the
1: footnotes to the tables.
0: Yeah. I mean, this, this brings up such a good point though, that, so, you know, when, with the reduction in the risk of infection of influenza, one would hope for some positive results. I mean, I don't, did you, did you look at uh, influenza hospitalizations and I, I suppose it wasn't powered to look at influenza deaths, you know, even with the multiple randomized studies. Um, but you didn't, you didn't know specifically about influenza hospitalizations um, no, or find no. a signal there. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's actually consistent with what we know about the influenza vaccines and the population in general that we, you know, we, there's three Cochrane reviews. So um, there's one that's in, that, that handles, you know, looks at children. There's one that looks at healthy adults. And then there's one that looks at adults age 65 and older. And so the the one that looks at adults 65 and older is the one where we actually have the least amount of information. And we actually don't know if it prevents severe disease or hospitalization based on randomized data. And this is also the the group, the population where we have a lot of biased observational studies, and this has been shown. This is where the healthy vaccine bias or the health, healthy user effect was actually originally described because um, uh, a group, uh, uh, so Jackson et al., they were able to show that um, over multiple years, all of the benefit that was seen against hospitalization or against uh, death um, in uh, the 65 and older cohort could actually be explained. By them simply being healthier and dying less of all causes, and so this was like kind of the start of people's awareness of the healthy vaccine A bias, and so really pointed to the fact that we need randomized studies, and so we don't we we don't have randomized studies in people 65 and older showing that um, the influenza vaccine reduces hospitalization and death in 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 adults, you know, um, healthy adults um, under the age of 65, over the age of 18, we it's similar to what you described in the pregnant people that, and the pregnant women, I guess, <laughs> now I'm saying pregnant people, but anyway, um, so that, that we see this um, decreased risk of influenza, um, like documented influenza, um, and then influenza-like illness, there's less of a decrease, but it was around 60% decreased risk of influenza and 20 to 30% decreased risk of influenza-like illness. Again, we don't show that there was a significantly different risk of severe disease or days lost of work. Um, and so we, we do, and we don't have sort of any all cause, you know, any sort of like all cause infection, all cause hospitalization, all cause mortality, nothing like that. Um, and then in children, we have the same sort of issue where we, we can document there's this decreased risk of infection um, and decreased risk of influenza and influenza-like illness, but how does that translate you know, to overall health? How does that h- translate to hospitalization, to death, to just... And, and those are open-ended questions, and we really shouldn't... We, we cannot rely on observational data to get those answers, and I'll say in the U.S. now yearly, we're not doing randomized studies. They're relying on um, test-negative design, which it can also have multiple biases um, and but even with that you know we're seeing really low rates of effectiveness sometimes down to like 20 30% i think it was in 2018 2019 it was like they they even saw depending on the strain they looked at it was down to zero like they didn't see any effect at all um, and so you know this is you know this is concerning that you're seeing these adverse events and a potential signal you know that maybe it's having unintended consequences may, you know, these are, these are concerns that we should, we should look into. And neither of us want to scare people with, you know, vaccine side effects or anything like that. But it's like, we do want to know that these vaccines that we're recommending are overall beneficial for people. And we need really higher quality data, especially for the high risk group of the people who are over 65. Um, and so, you know, even in Denmark and the Scandinavian countries where you guys are recommending it to that, that group, we really don't have strong data. And in the U S we're recommending it to everyone. Um, and I'll, I'll just point out what we brought up before, which is the issue with the pandemics vaccine, um, causing narcolepsy and healthy children, um, who have a very low risk. Of influenza, and so I'm surprised that Denmark is now saying young children should get the influenza vaccine to protect those at risk. And it's it kind of goes against what you said before that the Scandinavian countries historically have not, you know, been recommending that children get vaccinated to protect um, people who are who are at risk. Like people should be, in general, vaccinated, you know, to 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 because it's beneficial for them. That's um, a Danish policy. I shouldn't say Scandinavian yeah. because Finland, Finland okay. has had a different
1: policy. Uh, they have vaccinated against diseases also. That's right. Uh, the, I remember the, you bring that like up. Like rotavirus, which is not particularly beneficial for the individual child. Children don't die from rotavirus infection, but where it's actually a matter of health economy in Finland, where they say if we can save parents and from being home from work, etc., it 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 makes a good case for using or introducing rotavirus uh, vaccine. But in Denmark, it's true, this is really stepping away from the usual policy. And I think it's tremendously important. I agree with you and I, you're much more familiar with the data on epidemiological data on influenza vaccine and the elderly. I wasn't aware that it was so poorly documented, actually. But I think both for COVID vaccines to now wrap up and talk about both vaccines, both for COVID vaccines and and influenza vaccines, we have this very differential um risk profile with age. Uh, So it's much more severe if you have comorbidities and if you are older than if you are young and COVID Mm -hmm. to the extreme, actually. Um, And in that situation, I think, of course, it's important to have good randomized trials and good data on overall health outcomes in the risk groups. But for them, the case nonetheless is more uh, easy compelling. in this, there is much to mm-hmm. gain from getting protected from the specific infection because it can cause severe disease. But the case is completely different for children and young, healthy, younger, I would say, healthy adults, because there, the risk, the benefit-risk ratio mm. depends highly on the since since benefits are so small in terms of the specific protection, it's extra important that we have good data that it's there are no unwarranted unexpected negative effects because that would completely skew their uh, benefit risk uh, towards you know uh, <laughs> an increased risk uh, with being vaccinated which i think is something that a vaccination program cannot tolerate uh, it's it's uh, it's yes. so dangerous uh, of course for population health but it's also a very dangerous game to play with with public trust because one yeah. scandal one one situation one incident where a vaccine turns out to actually have harmful effects for those who receive it and harms that exceed the benefits could completely ruin trust in in all vaccines.
0: Yeah absolutely um and I think it also you know gets back to the fact that in in the in the United States you know for healthcare workers a lot of healthcare workers are also not just recommended, but, but mandated to get the vaccine. And I, you know, I have to say that moving back to the United States in 2015, I was, I was really surprised when I was basically told that I didn't have a choice about getting the influenza vaccine, which is something that I had not chosen to get, um, you know, because I didn't feel like I was at high risk for influenza and in, in Denmark, it wasn't something that, you know, was brought up to be me by, you know, the people in my department or my, you know, I, I, I worked with older patients. Um, and, and, um, you know, it wasn't something that was brought up, it wasn't something brought up by my doctor or encouraged there. So when I got to the United States, and um, then I was being told to get it, or I had to wear a mask at all times, you know, I, I thought, wow, you know, I felt very sort of strong armed. And so I thought, wait, why, why, why can't they just present me with the data saying, you know, if you get vaccinated, then you're going to, you know, protect your patients. And I'm very open to looking at studies showing like, okay, well, if you get vaccinated, this will reduce your patient's risk of getting, you know, influenza by this amount that of course, those data don't, don't exist. You, you know, um, we don't have data on transmission of influenza. Um, And so, you know, I I felt very uncomfortable, and and I just you know I I I I think that it's so much better to present people with data and let them make a choice, and I think that people will tend to make you know a a a a, a good choice, like they'll they'll want to certainly you know protect their patients and do the best thing for their patients of their healthcare providers and. And so I I do think that we get into this problem um, of yeah I guess eroding trust in public health in general if people feel like they're just being told they need to get something but not seeing really convincing data that it's going to be either beneficial to them or the you know their patients and you know I did have a good friend who got Guillain Barre from the influenza vaccine um, when I was younger and so that you know, that also that that weighs into my mind. And so I I do think that, you know, we we, people deserve better data and that the, you know, our public health officials need to trust us. If we're going to trust them, they need to say, listen, if we will provide you with the data to help you make a reasonable decision, and then, you know, we're going to trust you to to make the right decision for you, your family, your patients, the people around you, um, you know, rather than this coercion, which obviously it it has not, it has not been working, it's backfired. I mean, in the United States, we saw so many healthcare workers quit their jobs because they felt uncomfortable um, with, with, with the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And now people are looking at the other vaccines. Part of the reason we're doing this podcast, um, people want information, they want to, you know, be in control of their health and be able to make the right decisions.
1: Absolutely. And I, I I completely agree. Mandates should never substitute good data and they wouldn't be necessary if there was good data, because people make good choices and sound choices if they're presented with convincing, trustable evidence from good studies. Yeah,
0: I really do feel like the only ethical course is to allow people informed consent and other, you know, other methods of coercion are just are going to backfire in the end, because certainly, you know, if people have adverse events, and you're looking specifically at people with adverse events, you know, if they were forced to get that vaccine or that medical product, you know, they're always going to be angry um, about what happened to them that they were forced to get it. And I think it puts us into a bad situation as a society when people are Forced to do things with their bodies they're not comfortable with, so it's of course different than like saying you, you know, you need to wear a seatbelt or you shouldn't, you know, you should stay under the speed limit. This is a medical product that people are being asked to put into their body, and so it's it should be their right to say yes or no. Yeah. So I mean, we will be circulating around
1: this uh, topic many times, Tracy. I think yet to come. Yeah. Differences between Denmark and the U.S. and and one major difference there is I. We haven't got mandates in denmark and i don't think we'll ever get them uh, and i think health authorities to some extent are helped by the fact that people have a high trust uh, in the system perhaps also because it is a conservative system with few vaccines and and most of them are are well documented etc so, uh, so 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 it's easier for health authorities to avoid mandates and still keep good coverages. Um, we have well above 90 percent for all the childhood vaccines just voluntarily um people Mm -hmm. parents coming and 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 getting their children vaccinated but but it is i think also uh yeah and very interfering uh and, and curiously, for a country like the U.S. that praises, you know, personal freedom so much that that would be the country to have <laughs> the most mandates. It, it I matter.
0: know. It, it is ironic. And I, I it is, you know, and it's caused a lot of strife. I mean, <laughs> you know, for the reasons you described. So, well, I mean, I think this is a great note to end on. And I want to say that um, in future episodes, I know people are really excited to hear us talk about the HPV and the hep B vaccines and get into more detail about those. And, you know, part of our purpose, like we were just discussing a reason for doing this podcast is to, uh, you know, give people the information that they want to, to make the best choices they can for their children and themselves. Um, so um, I hope we're, I hope we're achieving that. And um, I don't know if you want to say anything uh, to end or if we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. And we'll say, uh, See you next time. Thanks for
1: joining. Thank you very much.